for his even fits at the big ball. These Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Okay. Spotting for three. The place is going to run. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos in the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Thursday, Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher, another edition of Sandos and the Sidekick. It is jam-packed as we got a lot to cover. ETSU hosting the Citadel. It will be the 15th time that these two teams have gotten together in Johnson City, the 30th time overall the teams have met. We'll go over all those particulars. We'll talk Southern Conference football because it is conference season galore. It started last week, and there are many games that will uh, dictate who will be the haves and the have-nots in the Southern Conference and who will keep their playoff hopes alive. So we'll talk about that. And then we've got the uh, BF5. What was this thing called again? There's BF5. A lot. Yeah. Steal that from Storms and Brock Lesnar in wrestling, but it's actually B5. 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 Basketball. Buzzer. Beater. Mm. Blowout. We had a DF5 we used to do on Fridays, which was Deep uh, Fat Fried Fiesta Festival. And we would bring all the deep fryers over to my house, and we would just invent stuff to deep fry. And then uh, many clogged arteries later, and a heart monitor, and some other um, 60 days of uh, a strict diet, no alcohol, and some other things. Uh, it, it went awry, Mike Gallagher. Like it went awry. Like I, fat you would do, but in fairness, I think you would have joined in. Oh yeah, no question. I mean, when you're when you're when we're trying to figure out how to deep fry Coke at some point, and Pepsi, and like liquids. Yeah, uh, you gotta put them in a batter. No, like I said, it was you know we did because you get bored with the Twinkies and the Snickers and the everything else. You, you fitted well to the State Fair. That's where they deep oh, fried sure. much everything. It's like I'm the second sure. biggest State Fair in the country, uh-huh. and it is exactly that. It's deep fried this, deep fried that, and there's new stuff every year. And there's cookies like Sweet Martha's cookies, deep fried, all that stuff is just unbelievable. So you would uh, do extremely well at the Minnesota State Fair. It's 12 days. Uh, about 150,000 people oh, yes. show up per day, and I know you would be there every single day. And that 12th day, my gosh, I would love to see your body. <laughs> Probably move on from that. Yes, this is what we're talking about, my buddy. And the last thing, bold predictions, where I'm really good, and Mike is well, it's just it, – it's been – in fairness, you've been about on par where you have yeah, been and where I've been. Yeah. I blacked out on some of these. You so I've, I've got a, a couple, three good ones again this week. All right, let's talk about the Citadel ETSU fresh off a win. And honestly, Citadel, a huge win. And, boy, that was a great atmosphere, as it always is. I, I'll say this, and me and Matt Wilgen have talked about this for a while. If the bye week ever falls to where VMI and the Citadel – Hopefully in Charleston, more in Lexington, are playing each other on a bye week, going to the game. I just really, I, you know, I went to the Army-Navy a few years ago. It, it was spectacular. But in its own small bubble here, the VMI Citadel game I think would be great. The Keydets, they bust all the way down to Charleston. 
It's like 12,000 people. The camera multiple times was shaking out of control. It was hard to watch the game, which I love because it just put everything into it. And probably says more about the production quality than the crowd, but I understand what you mean. It probably just means the, <laughs> probably just means the platforms are garbage right. and, and the thing. But because the press box is spectacular there. But I, I, I really it – was, it was a fun game to watch. You could tell the Citadel, who had lost two in a row, had put a lot into that game. Question is, can they either ride the momentum from that or are they coming out a little flat? ETSU seems to be kind of chugging along with a little bit of a script now, which is play really good in the first quarter, jump out, second and third, kind of go toe-to-toe, maybe lose a, a, a few points, fall behind in the third quarter, and, you know, in Sanford's case, the fourth quarter, and then all of a sudden, bam, they just turn it back on and, and end up winning the game. Now, I would rather, like most fans who are gathering their stuff on the field goal attempt by Tyler Keltner and then sort of exhaled and threw their hands in the air and sat back down, I was like, oh, here we go again. But I, I appreciate Randy Sanders making sure 10,000 people stayed the entire game, got their money's worth, and were not able to leave early. Buy a few more concessions at the concession yeah. stand. Yeah, he should get a cut into that, decision. right? Well, sure. I, I think all of that is genius. Um, by everything that uh, Coach Sanders has done. But I'm kind of curious in the start of the game how the Citadel is going to come out. Now, Citadel had the rough start to twenty um, the spring season, 2021 here in February. But then the last couple games, they really picked it up. A couple big wins. And then this start of the year kind of started a little slow for them again. You know, obviously they play Coastal Carolina, who's getting national love everywhere. And rightfully so, undefeated, they're wearing out FBS teams. So nothing to be ashamed of by losing to them. And then the Charleston Southern, honestly, Charleston Southern just kind of blitzkrieged them early. 21 first quarter points. They were up 24-3 or something like that. And then then Citadel kind of settled in, cut into it, but never could quite get back into it. Then they played North Greenville, and, you know, they wore out North Greenville, which they should. But the last two games, they've been able to score on their opening drive. And this last game was, and we talked about it on Monday's show, was the you know the play action, throw deep, Raleigh Webb, just another feather in his cap for long touchdown passes. But Citadel is going to run the football, right? The big thing, and I've tried to find what is the biggest difference in the first three years for Coach Thompson and his record in the last three years. And numbers are numbers, and this year's numbers are still to be determined, right? Because – I just mentioned they played Coastal Carolina where the numbers were quite skewed one way, and they played North Greenville, which you would think would skew it back some. But 2016 to 2018, his first three years, on opponents' third down conversion, the Citadel ranked first, first, and second. The last three years, so 2019 spring and, and so far, fifth, sixth, and currently dead last, they've given up 52%. I think that adds to the fact that they've been first or second in time possession in every year but this year. And they're fifth. There's still 31 minutes of time of possession. So it's not like, again, they're not holding the ball. They're not, you know, kind of doing what they do and beat you down three yards at a play. But then the last thing I'll bring up is the turnovers. And I think this is the biggest one. And I think this is more about defense for Coach Thompson than it is about offense. 2016 to 2018, the first three years, they were plus seven in turnover margin. Last three years, they're minus 13. And you win games, right? Plus seven, you're winning games. You're minus 13, you're losing games. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, this year, they were minus when I first looked this stat up. um, was actually before last game. And then VMI, I will say, Citadel is now currently plus two. So 
they were minus 16 going into the game, and they're now minus 13. They're plus two this season, and Seth Morgan threw a couple passes where clearly him and the wide receivers were not on the same page because there were passes 15, 20 yards, you know, to uh, defensive backs that were just kind of waiting on it in the end zone almost like a fair catch. Like, I, I don't know exactly what the miscommunication was, I'm sure. Wiljam will tell you it's the receivers because, you know, and I'm sure I'll get a text uh, as soon as he hears this. But, yes. So, that being said, those are just the initial before I get in sort of the nuts and bolts of the game, just a sort of overview of the last six years of the Citadel from really good for three years and really struggling two years and four games. On turnovers, they have turned over just three times this year, and you mentioned they're plus two. That does mean they've only forced five turnovers. Those are both league lows, which is interesting to see. ETSU has forced nine turnovers, given away only five, so they're plus four, which is second in the league. So you can talk about their stats being a little bit skewed turnover-wise, that being the Citadel because of the VMI game. I mean, you know, three is a lot to make up in one game. Uh, but it seems like that will be a key area this week, as turnovers are always are, but specifically this week because it's two of the top three teams in the Southern Conference in turnovers. On third down conversion, Coach Sanders last night on the, ra- on the ETS Radio Coaches Show talked about it. He thought that the third down conversion defense stats for the Citadel have been skewed by their first two games of the year. But I looked and, yes, there was obviously the success by Coastal Carolina and Charleston Southern, but VMI converted 7-12 last week. So I don't think I'm buying the skewed stats. I think it's just more of a trend rather than any type of barrage. 52%, as you said, last in the league, the only team that is uh, 50% or more in terms of letting opponents convert on third down. Meanwhile, ETSU, we know offensively, very good at third down conversions this year, 49%, which is second in the league. I know people want to hammer Charleston Southern because they're just generally not good at football. I get that. But looking at them this year, I don't think that that's that bad of a loss, at least yet. Now, they've only played three games, so we don't know a ton, and obviously one of them was the Citadel game. But they lost to East Carolina a couple of weeks back by three. And East Carolina at the FBS level this year is 2-1. and one. So... I want to caution a little bit. I know it's tough for specifically people around this area that know the history of Charleston Southern to say, well, you know, maybe that's a team that's going to be doing some things this year. I get that's not something you hear in the fall often about Charleston Southern. But I would caution in just throwing out that 17-point loss. Granted, I'm sure the Citadel would have liked it to have been closer, but as you said early on, things didn't go their way and things kind of went downhill from there. Interesting that the Citadel hasn't played really a close game yet. The beginning of their years, going back to 2018, have all really been close. Four of their first five games in 2018 were separated by one score. Same deal in 2019, and then three of their first four games in the spring of 2021 were as well. No one-score games yet this year. I've hammered the stat repeatedly on this show and on broadcast. 13 consecutive games that ETSU has played in the league that have been one-score contest, and whether you want to credit me or John Brush for coming up with a stat, 106 points scored by each team in the last four matchups. Of course, those have been split, which is pretty incredible to think over that long of a period of time that literally nothing has separated these teams. And each team has had good seasons and bad seasons in that stretch, which makes it even more compelling. So this is going to be a close game. I don't think I'm breaking news to anyone, but if there was any thought that, eh, you know, the Citadel, as I thought last week, going into last week, I was like, oh, the Citadel's not going to be anything this year. I mean, they're going to be bottom two, bottom three in the league. 
little bit more, and I'm not trying to overreact off one game, specifically a game that it's easy for them to get up for, right, at home in front of a big crowd, Military Classic of the South, Shaco Cup or Shaco Trophy or... Silver Shaco, you're right, you're right, you're right. right. So if you needed any more fuel to the close game fire, and if you needed your this game's not going to be close fire extinguished, I believe I missed that. So you mentioned the, the points, and of course... The last four games, the road team, which makes no sense a lot in football, has won. The last home win was Citadel 2016. It was like 45-10 or 42-10. It was bad. And the last ETSU win at home, Mike Gallagher, you've been here long enough. You should know this game. Uh, well, my first year was 2017. Doesn't matter. Last win. Oh, final game of football. There we go. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah. figure, I oh, figured you've been here long enough. At me it, like, you've been I, here. I, okay, I, I, well, but but I mean, we, we uh, fair. But we've talked. You know that that yes. that's the the game we always point to. But that was the last game. So six thousand five hundred thirty-one days. ETSU's actually zero two in the new stadium. Okay, just snuck into. days, of course, of course. Um, so <laughs> don't act like you can just slide that in under the radar at this point. So, and nine and five all time at home. And 0-2 in the new stadium. So it would be nice. Again, it's been a theme, and I don't think anyone, and even Coach Sanders, like, well, you know, we're not talking about winning first win at Sanford all time in each issue history. We're not talking about first win against Wofford. They're just the team that's crossed the thing and, you know, all, all the coach stuff, which is good because obviously the guys are bought into that and not buying that. But it's not fun for me and you. So. First win in Green Stadium, I think, would be as this season has gone and each issue are trying to check off first. First SEC win, you know, check. I, you know, I don't know. First swack me. I, I don't know how many would be. I'm trying to make that up. But you, you get going down the list. Now Sanford. Now Wofford. Now you can say first win against the Citadel at home, you know, in Green Stadium. You check that one off. Then you get a Furman. Well, you haven't won a Furman. So you can start coming up with a little, and that's what we do. We come up with storylines and have a little fun. To do that, I think there's two things that has to happen. One, you have to be aware that Jalen Adams, who started as a defensive back punt returner, got moved to what I would consider his more natural position just because he was local and I got a chance to watch him play a lot as a quarterback here in town. And, you know, he got to wear the the number 11 for Steve Spurrier and all the quarterbacks that are team captains get to wear number 11 for Steve Spurrier, and they made that change several years. And I think it's a great tradition. So he did that, and I watched him run around and chunk it around. And heck of an athlete. I've known his dad for, gosh, 20-some years now. So um, I think if ETSU can just control him, he's coming into his own. Fifth most rushing yards by Citadel quarterback. They've been playing football there a long time, and they've been running a triple option since the 50s. So to have the fifth most rushing yards by quarterback in a game at this point – I think speaks volumes to Jalen Adams, 188 yards. He's gained 20 pounds. I think I talked about that on Monday as well. So I think, one, you have to sort of control Jalen Adams. But then, two, Citadel does what all the triple option teams do. They hit big plays. People don't really think of them as big play teams, but that's what they're actually made. Three yards, three yards, three yards, four yards, bust assignment, touchdown. And that's, a, that's what they do. So rather that's a Raleigh Webb, who's my second key. And then the third key would be the fullback who made his debut last week in Logan Billings, who came out of nowhere. I was checking stats, and before I got to two deep, I already put Billings down to the third because I figured he got garbage time. And then I watched the game, and then I got to two deep, and he was impressive um, for his first game at the B-back, they call it, fullback, whatever you want to do. 
But I, I think, you know, if you get the fullback going, the beatback going, you get the quarterback, you can you can throw deep, then it really doesn't matter who the pitch man is. That's when the triple option teams are dangerous. On your second key, and I told you that I really was curious about what the record of the Citadel is. Oh, you looked it up. Ryan nice. Webb catches a 70-yard or further touchdown. I had to. I had to this morning. It's actually pretty easy to look up because you just go back, see what games he scored in. Does he have more than 70 yards? A lot of them he didn't. It was relatively easy. So this year, 72-yard touchdown against North Greenville. Win. 80-yarder against VMI. Win. No touchdowns against Coastal and Charleston Southern. Last year, no 70-plus-yard touchdowns, and the team went 2-10. In 2019, a 73-yarder against ETSU that won the game, as we know. Against Sanford, an 84-yard touchdown, quadruple overtime loss, which was devastating to me mm. because I looked in reverse chronological mm. order. In 2018, a 91-yarder against Furman, but that was a loss, 28-17. 77-yarder against Mercer, 38-31 win. So, the six 70-plus-yard touchdowns he has in his career, they're 4-2. and two. But, again, quadruple overtime, kind of throw that one out. I'd call them four and a half and one and a half, you know, four and one, whatever. They are 11 and 22 when he does not catch a 70-yard touchdown or further. And it's pretty incredible to see, and this is the brilliance of it, I think, the unpredictability of it. They did it on their last meaningful play from scrimmage against DTSU a couple years back. Then you hear all week from your coaches, what do you need to stop? Triple option. They're going to run, 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 run. And then what do they do on the very first play from scrimmage against VMI in front of a sellout crowd in what is every year their biggest game of the year? Boom, over the top, 80-yard touchdown. The unpredictability of it. I don't think, and maybe you'd be able to tell me different, I don't think there is any way to discern when they go that direction with that long pass. But they will. You just don't know when. So Raleigh Webb is definitely a key. I would go as far to say, and it's not a guarantee, I get that, but if he hits, you know, 70 yard or further, that they're going to win the game, and that if they don't, they're not. It's that important to me. And on the other side for ETSU, I think it's a passing game in which Tyler Rydell is going to have to be a leader. And the quarterback's always leader, right? And guys have raved about his leadership, but I think it's going to have to be passing game one running game two. Citadel's middle of the road in rush defense, but they're second to last in pass defense. And I think if you can hit the home run ball on ETSU's side, you're really demoralizing a team specifically like the Bulldogs who have 90% of the time to work so, so hard to get their yards. And these are the top two teams in the league in pass efficiency. So I think it's really a battle of, I know it sounds crazy, the passing game because you know Citadel's going to run. You know ETSU can run it. Passing, whoever wins, that battle of the passing games and is efficient and hits the big home run ball is going to win. Well, if it's anything like the spring, the Citadel sold out against the run, and ETSU struggled to run the football to say uh, mightily, if you go back and look at those numbers. And I think that's what they will do again, and they will dare you to hit plays over the top. The only team I can compare similar styles to ETSU is probably Chattanooga. Want to run the ball? Yes, Chattanooga over the years have probably thrown the ball more than ETSU, but certainly as far as it's sort of a ground-and-pound defense, no matter, except for maybe the couple years Tom Arthur was there, that's been sort of the bread and butter for Chattanooga. And what Chattanooga's been able to do, going back, and and, uh, obviously the the games are off, so I can't go back and watch, but looking at some of the statistics, and then actually 
talking to one of the radio crew was they find a matchup and then just try to wear it out. And that's what Chattanooga's done. Randy Sanders has talked about if you find something that works, you got to keep doing it before they can make an adjustment, wear it out. So I'm kind of curious. And I agree. I think the passing game is the deal because Citadel is going to leave their cornerbacks on an island. They're going to bring more than you can block a lot, whether it's run, whether it's pass, but they're going to do that. So if you can successfully run, we'll go. The other thing I think for ETSU, yes, they will have to respect the run. And after Citadel watches tape of Wofford, you know, not running that many option plays, but ETSU struggling on a couple of those option plays. They're probably licking their chops at trying to get similar looks, trying to attack short boundaries. I'm sure they're doing all that. I'm sure Billy Taylor's getting paid to figure out how not to do that. But they will do that little freeze option, step back throw. Will ETSU be ready for that? You know, because it's going to happen three, four times a game is, is what they do. Now, they hit one, that's all they really are looking for. If they hit another one, it's not a touchdown, but it's a 30, 40-yard game, great. But they're going to go, you know, three yards cloud of dust. What I think is important for ETSU and what they've been pretty good at the last couple years and really good in 2018 down there was they were able to stop the Citadel twice on fourth down early in the game, and Coach Thompson didn't go for it again until late in the game after they were down two scores. And if you can get a quick early fourth down stops, then that takes that out of play, and Citadel is no longer a four-down offense. So all that to be said, I think the opening of the game, because Citadel's been pretty good opening the game minus Charleston Southern, and honestly, they weren't that bad in Coastal. They didn't really – it got a couple possessions before Coastal could get on the board. For the Citadel, last two games, though, they scored opening drives. They've been able to go down, they've scored. ETSU has scored on two opening drives. ETSU is plus 42 in the first quarter. Now, I sent that to my radio crew, and, wow. and a couple of them were like, well, let's take Wise and Delaware State to maybe have a better number, where you're looking at Samford, Wofford. And they're still outscoring our opponent 24-6. to 6. Yeah, 10 nothing against Wofford. You know, and I, it was 3 nothing Vandy, I think they were down or something. So. Right. Um, and Sanford had a field goal. So that was the six points they gave up. Then in the fourth quarter, it's 41-22 to 22, ETSU against those three teams. And the 22 came from Sanford. Sanford. Yeah. So Vandy and Wofford didn't score in the fourth quarter. If you include the other games back in, they're plus 33, so plus 19. So the first and fourth quarter, which was sort of my premise when I sent that out, ETSU is great at starting games or great at finishing games. In the second quarter overall, they're scoring more points. Against the three teams we mentioned, they're down four, 20 to 16. In the third quarter, same thing, 20 to 16. They're down four again. But if you look at all the other numbers, so to me, if ETSU can start the game, and I'll say this, it's kind of funny they're down in the third quarter because they've scored on three drives to start the third quarter. They're opening drives. they got a couple field goals and a touchdown. So they've been very successful of starting the second half. But I think the first and fourth quarter, if ETSU gets off to a hot start, they have proven it is very difficult in the fourth quarter to make headway once that defense really gets sort of settled in. Minus Sanford, of course, where Sanford had the 22 points. ETSU managed to get a stop when they needed it to get a punt to keep the game, and they managed to get the last stop. But when you get to the fourth quarter, and ETSU's got a lead or starting to get there, Billy Taylor really does a nice job of keeping everybody at bay. Kicking game, ETSU is hit some big returns on kickoffs with Jacob Saylor's recently. Citadel's bottom in the league in kickoff coverage. 
teams are averaging 26 yards per return. It's kind of interesting to see how it's happened. They're out kicking their coverage, really. They're averaging 62 yards per kick, which is best in the league, and they're worst in the league in kickoff return against yardage. Uh, they've only kicked one field goal. I mean, it's not surprising, right? As you said, first down, second down, third down. Yeah, if it's fourth, then even in the ballpark of manageable or reasonable, they are going for it as long as it's not deep in their own territory. Uh, Punting-wise, they are best in the league, averaging over 40 yards per punt, only team to do that. So I think that all of that is going to play into this sum, and I think that ETSU, if they can get, again, the big plays not only offensively, but you know another 40, 50-yard kick return from Jacob Saylor is even more. Uh, that's going to be extremely helpful. Um, will Citadel be able to flip the field with a punt game? Right? Elijah Huzzy's going to be important as to when he fields those punts, when he lets them go. I always am frustrated by the uh, let the ball bounce when it's not necessarily a great-looking punt. Now, I know the alternative is, oh, well, what if I'm going to come up and misplay it? And then ball's free, and, you know, you can have the field flipped. And the team that was kicking it gets it back. It's a turnover. I get that. But... You just don't know on those bounces. It's unpredictable, and we even saw one, um, I believe it was last week against Wofford, uh, on that punt that looked like it was going to go like 17, 18 yards and then hit at the 15 and went all the way down to the 2, and I think that was the, I believe that was the 98-yard uh, touchdown drive for ETSU. But that'll be big, too. So Elijah Huzzy being smart, how he's fielding punts. Jacob Saylor's can he hit a big one in the kicker turn game, and then, um, yeah, punting, can they flip the field and, uh, they're not going to be kicking a lot of field goals. They're perfect on extra points. Um, there's just so many different things to look at in a game like this because you expect it to be close. It has been close in the past. I think ETSU is going to win this game, but I don't think we still know a lot about the Citadel. And so if this is a contest where the Bucks are trailing going into the fourth quarter, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm kind of confused on what to think about time of possession because – ETSU is only averaging 26 minutes time of possession in the five games against the Citadel. Can you know they're averaging 34 give or take minutes this year? Can they get to 35, 36, and it can really hamper what Citadel can do because possessions are a minimum for them, or because Citadel sort of dares you to hit big plays? Does ETSU hit four or five big plays? Maybe not all for touchdowns, but four or five big plays, score and Citadel kind of dominates time of possession. I mean, last year, ETSU only had 22 minutes time of possession won the game. But they hit some big plays. You know, I know they didn't score on the little, what, corner route, whatever that was, wheel route to Sailors, uh, ended up missing a field goal, but then they got the 49-yarder to Will Huzzy. They got that, that big pass uh, down the sideline where Nate Atkins tippy-toed the sideline, if you remember. They got a couple short fields and the Huzzy interception where Adams was trying to throw it out of bounds. It was yeah. The fumble return for a touchdown, right? That takes a possession away when Tyree Adams, and by the way, is he mad? Robinson, is he mad that he is not going to be able to play in Charleston? Maybe he can bring some of that magic here. I hope so. He's been able to do this. So, a lot of storylines in this game. uh, I think it'll be great. It's a 4.30 start. I keep trying to hammer that because ETSU traditionally has gone 7.30, 3.31, depending on the month. So, it is 4.30. I mean, if you get there early, just tailgate a little more or whatever. I mean, you can get there early. It's better that it being a little later than I think earlier, but the game will be at 4.30. Pre-game show on the Buccaneer Sports Network at 3 o'clock. 
All right, we'll step aside for a timeout. Lots of storylines in the Southern Conference to get to. We'll give you our opinion on those games after this timeout. Santa Sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. And they never heard from him again. Now that's scary, but listen to this one. It was a dark and dreary night. The man pulled into the convenience store parking lot. The lights flickered as he crept toward the counter and saw the new Halloween jumbo box, but he left without buying one, missing his chance at $75,000. That's terrifying. I know, right? Scare up some fun this season with a new Halloween jumbo box only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Breakdown time, Southern Conference, by popular demand, because we do have fans all over the Southern Conference, because if I do make a mistake, they will let me know. That is true. And which I, is I fair. I love that about them. I which is fair. Them. If you Any misspeak. Any mistake Jay Sandoz makes. Please, they should. Uh, absolutely. I am, I am not one of those guys that uh, ask what you do for a living, and I'll come down and criticize you. I'll give you the, um, yeah, all right, I was wrong. Or I'll look it up and, uh, you know. I still think I'm right, and I look it up, and I'm still wrong. I've, I've yet to, I've yet to find one to. Uh, I've had to eat crow. Go ahead. You called it on Monday, a separating weekend of the Southern Conference. We're going to know much more about the league after this weekend than we knew at any other point this year. I'd agree. It seems to start with what I'd call the headlining game, not only of the Southern Conference weekend, but of the Southern Conference season so far. Chattanooga and VMI. Weird for chat. They're like 19th in the coaches' poll, and they're outside of the top 30 in the stats FCS poll. I'm not really sure what's going on. We do like to make fun of non-coaches polls at the FCS mid-major level, if you have listened to the show for a while. The Mox, I think, are doing something really smart. They're cycling in running backs. Usually it's a Lim Ford and Terrell Price. Last week, Geno Appleberry also got some time. Cole Copeland was good last week, too, granted against a very soft Western Carolina defense. But quite honestly, at this point in the year, I think that the losses on the defensive side of the ball have really hurt VMI. Not sure there will be much stiffer competition this week for Chad on the defensive side than there was last week. Uh, when they face Western Carolina. I know the VMI has Stone Snyder, and Coach Wachenheim said he felt good about the defense as long as they have him. But to me, you lose four of your top five tacklers, two of your top three disruptors in the backfield from a defense that was historically good for them, and you give up 23 to Wofford, 35 to Citadel, not even considering the 60 against Kent State. I'm not sure this is a defense that's going to do anything to be able to stop Chattanooga. I'm not saying they're going to give up 45, but I don't think it's going to be a repeat of what the Kedets were able to do in the spring. We do know one thing. The better defensive team on the field Saturday is going to be Chattanooga. May not know a ton about what VMI is going to bring to the table. I think I know, obviously, but I've been wrong before. Chattanooga, regardless of what you think about VMI's defense, is going to be the better defensive side. They played a pretty aggressive schedule, including a ranked FBS team or FCS team, I should say, and an SEC team, and still averaging giving up just 19 points per game, tied for the league low. I'd imagine they'd have to prepare for both Colin Ironside and Seth Morgan, considering how things went last week with Ironside being unspectacular and Morgan throwing two interceptions in relief. Though, if they're smart, and we know uh, that Chattanooga, VMI, both of these head coaches, extremely intelligent, I'd imagine they're just preparing for the system of VMI rather than the quarterback that's going to be out there. 
I think that this is Chattanooga by a score, but it could come down to the quarterbacks and who makes less mistakes. Remember, last week was the first time a Chattanooga quarterback was anything close to good the entire week. Well, I think you hit it on the head with you play the system and you worry more about Corey Britty and specifically on the outside, Jacob Harris. Because if Harris has a big day, it's always going to be a good day for VMI. And if he's having a big day, that means they're probably going to be able to run the football. So I would almost work outside in, and I know that's not the normal thinking of football coaches, but if you can bracket or do whatever you can for Harris, and people have tried to do whatever, and he is so big and strong and can really run great hands and still makes catch. He made some tough catches in the Citadel game. He's going to get his catches, but I think I would be more concerned with that and just go with whatever quarterback the last three quarterbacks they got all are similar. I mean, it's not like one is a runner and the rest are throwers. They're all passers. They're all going to drop back. They're all going to throw it. So I agree. I think Rusty Wright and his crew just going to focus in on the system. The shocking thing, and you touched on it, the rush defense, they're giving up 291 yards on the ground, and that is just not VMI-like. And the thing that I still watch and can't believe is other than Stone Snyder, they're just not – any other linebackers just not making a tackle on the first contact. And that's usually the one thing that they're good at. It's like, all right, we're not athletic. We're not, you know, as this and this or dynamic or whatever. But normally, you think of VMI linebackers, and they've had plenty. They're just sure-handed. They hit you, you go down, go to the next play. Yards after contact's been big. The best running game is either ETSU or, or, I mean, we're obviously partial, but ETSU and Chattanooga. Right now, I mean, it's just the one-two back, and I know they don't run the ball as much as a three-back, and so maybe the total yards rushing isn't that. Now, Mercer's going to make a, a claim, after, especially after Fred Davis had his monster game. We'll talk about that a little later, but I think the best two one-headed rushing attack is ETSU and Chattanooga. The most running back by committee is Mercer right now, and they just got – I know Fred had a big day, but they've got a lot of guys. So I think – defense, running game is just going to wear down VMI. I think it'll be a tight game. I don't think Chattanooga is going to run away with it. If Cole Copeland does turn the, the football over a little bit, then you know VMI certainly has a shot to win the football game, but I think Chattanooga is going to go in there. It'll be a dogfight. It'll be a little bit higher scoring than probably what some people may think, and 34-31 Chattanooga you know, escapes with a, with a field goal victory. The 290 on the ground that VMI are giving up, 63 yards more than any other team in the league. Western Carolina giving up 227. Those uh, two of the three that have given up 200 or more. Sanford, the other at 216. Furman at Wofford. The Southern Conference website says this game is starting at 1.30 a.m. So set your alarms. We've got Beijing Olympic times we're apparently playing off of in the battle of the two rivals. Brilliant move by Wofford if it's 1.30 a.m. Because I agree. throw that curveball in, drunk students going to be going crazy, impossible place to play at 1.30 a.m with how nuts that atmosphere is going to be. Uh, the Paladins have had two weeks to figure out what happened against Mercer, and over the last four weeks, Furman has scored ten combined points. Now, to be fair, they played North Carolina State the week before Mercer in the 24-3 loss against the Bears. It was 45-7 against the Wolfpack. But the point remains, that offense has to be demoralized. Running game has been bad. 3.1 yards per carry as a team, nearly a full yard worse than anyone else in the league. Devin Abrams is carrying the ball less than five times per game. If that's me, I'm upset just knowing what he's shown on the field before. SoCon All-Freshman team, I believe that was back in 2019. Um, on his career, he's averaging more than double the amount of touches that he's getting on the ground this year. Keep an eye on the quarterback battle. Hamp Sisson, Jace Wilson. Wilson replacing Sisson last game. 
though honestly didn't look great after Sisson threw three interceptions. Wilson threw one. I'm not as much worried about their defense, and I think that's what this game will be about more than the offenses. Wofford's defense has been okay at best. I'm not, again, worried about Furman's defense. Uh, Wofford's offense seems to have fixed some things last week in terms of producing big plays after leaving some of the field against VMI, or at least Josh Coughlin thought so. But they still didn't put together any long, sustained drives. They're last in the league in total offense. Furman is second to last. We're used to seeing this as a battle of undefeated teams or nationally ranked teams. Instead, they're both looking for their first league win with Wofford. You're going to have to see if there's any more smoke screens at quarterback, whether it was the ripped-off nail that kept Jimmy Wyrick off the field on Saturday against DTSU, or if it was just some posturing by Conklin early in the week and said, you know what, I'm going to go with Peyton Derrick instead. Uh, will they use both? Will they use one of them? Uh, not quite sure. Uh, and even if we did have some inkling, Coach Conklin could throw something in at the last second and change that completely. I actually favor Furman slightly in this game because Wofford is missing so much in terms of injuries. They are hoping to get Michael Mason, all-league defensive lineman, back this week. Uh, don't have a definitive word on that, but it sounded like it was a week-to-week thing that kept him out of ETSU's game, and they could really, really use him up front. Uh, he's about as good as they have on the defensive side. And he would be huge. Number one, he's played a lot of games. He's a good anchor defensive end. Big, strong kid that has wreaked havoc amongst many a games. And I think that would be a great news for the Wofford Terriers. The biggest question for me, which team comes up with an identity? I, I know – and I – listen, I was beating the Furman drum. I watched the – first couple games, I'm like, man, this offense dynamic. If Ham Simpson's throwing the football. But then you go back and look, Furman's dead last in rushing attack. I can't. I don't, I don't even know when that's happened. Dead last. That's one thing to be like, okay, they're fourth, fifth, whatever. And again, they don't run the ball as much as Citadel, run the ball as much as Wofford. But it's almost like bizarro world when you look at these two teams and, and what they've been. I do appreciate the shot they fired at Georgia and Auburn. And they have followed, they've done this last several years, and I do enjoy that Wofford and Furman have claimed the oldest Deep South football rivalry, and they throw shade every time this game comes up because Furman and Wofford tangled in, in 1889. And they played four times before Georgia and Auburn in 1882, who claims they're the oldest rivalry. So I'll, anytime you can throw something at the big boys – and claim, and I don't know, back it up with facts. Call it, call me crazy. Uh, something I don't like to do here. I like to just make stuff up. But they use facts. Good for them. And I, I enjoy that. That being said, here's here's my question for Furman. Two of them. One, a lot of people talking about Jace Wilson. And the more that Hampson struggled in that extra week off, there are a lot of people talking about that that freshman from Texas is, is the guy. He's going to be the guy. I don't know that they're going to do that on this game. I think Hamp Sisson's going to come back. I think they've got two weeks. They're going to prepare. I would beg both teams to go back to who you are and run the football. Furman, up until this year, I would argue that their two running backs would give, again, we just talked about last segment, or last game we talked about, ETSU Chattanooga. They'd be right there. Wins one of the better running backs in the league. You, I, you, it, and people sleep on Abrams, just like people sleep sometimes, I think, on Jacob Sailors. So, I think if Furman goes back to who they are running the football, Hamp Sisson can throw the ball, get back to some easy throws for him, maybe not straight down the field, get some confidence builders. They've had two weeks, got a game plan. On the flip side, they don't know what to expect from Wofford. 
I don't know that any human being on the planet, even on the Wofford staff, knows what to expect from Wofford football. The radio staff was incredulous last week that they didn't know, and they went to two or three practices and still got something different. So I don't know what to do. I think Wofford and Furman should go back to running the football, making this a trench warfare, and then looking for some passes, you know, over the top occasionally, but, you know, more of first down play action, move the chain type stuff. Furman, great tight ends. I mean, Ron Miller's one of the best. Find him a few more times, right? I, I don't know that if you. I don't know what to expect. I'm completely clueless. The two weeks, I think Furman, Coach Hendricks, Coach Corals. I, I think the offense will get figured out, and they'll they'll go back to some basics. If Jace White comes in, I've got no idea what what to expect there. I've just had some Furman people tell me that you know he's sort of the heir apparent that they just they want to play him maybe sparingly four games, red shirt, moving forward. That's the guy now. I've not seen Jace really on the field. Um, I mean, a little bit Mercer, but I, I don't feel like that was, you know, a game plan, everything there. Wofford, they get Mason back. They can do some stuff defensively. And I'll say this. I said this on a recap. From the 50-yard line in on the plus side, they were dynamic and looked like an explosive team. I don't know what the difference in play calling is from their own 49 to goal line, but if they could just say, man, we're just going to be that team, Wofford may have something because they still got some athletes that, that can do some stuff in space. And, yes, I know that QB is a little bit of a flip a coin, but you don't necessarily have to be great runner. Again, if you can just make them respect the run enough, get a couple pitches in, and then maybe throw the football down the field. I don't know what to expect. I'm only going to say I give Wofford a slight advantage because they have an extra week to prepare. But then again, what are they preparing for? I'm moving out. Moving yeah, I don't break down. Yeah, okay. Your ship was almost sunk a couple of years back on Santos and the Sidekick by overbelieving in VMI. True. Mine may almost be sunk by overbelieving in Western Carolina. Mercer and Western this week in Cullowee, we overbelieved in the Catamounts last week against Chattanooga. They got their doors blown off by the Mox on the road by four touchdowns. While Mercer won a tight home game against Sanford and the Bears are just on the outside of the top 25 in both the coaches and stats FCS poll. But do we have a trap game on our hands? Even though Mercer has won six of their last seven SoCon games, some starting to believe that they could be for real. Fred Davis coming off a record-setting rushing performance with school records in rush yards and rushing touchdowns, 276-5, and five, as you mentioned earlier. Fred Payton, granted, hasn't put together any sparkling, tremendous starts, and the Bears' starting quarterback has been serviceable, I'd say maybe a little bit better than serviceable, but he's done enough to hold off Carter Peavy thanks to his ability to run over 35 yards on the ground each of the last two weeks. they got a couple of targets they can hit and Ty James and Devron Harper on the outside. They've got a lot of things going for them. And then there's Western Carolina who can't stop anybody. And you, may, mean, view, nobody. And you may view this as clear-cut, 45-17, to 17, that drubbing against Chattanooga, and you might say another 45-17 game is coming especially with there maybe being some questions at quarterback for Western after Rogan Wells was pulled following two completions to his team and two to the other for just six offensive yards of passing offense. Carlos Davis came on. So looking further into that, apparently he did get injured. Okay. So there was an injury. So the question is, now I'm on Western's too deep because we know working at a university, sometimes the too deep is not necessarily what you're going to believe. So my question is, Will Rogan Wells play? Carlos Davis, though, did come in. There's a lot of people high on him. Good numbers. Yeah. 
two touchdowns, I believe he had, when he came in against Chattanooga. Unfortunately, the game at that point where the Catamounts was out of hand, it really didn't matter what he was able to do. I'm paying attention to who they're starting this weekend. It looked like when you're looking at the 2 deep, Rogan Wells is listed as the number one. I don't know that that means that's what's sure, going to happen. but he is listed. Um, remember the stat that Western has been bottom two in the league in rushing defense for each of the last 15 seasons or whatever it was. That, that was from the spring. This was a great look up by you. Uh, they're bottom two again, and it's against a powerful Mercer run game. Davis could very well set another rushing record this week, two in two weeks. But Mercer doesn't get to the quarterback often, just three sacks the whole year. If Wells starts... Could he hurt them with the pass game and his legs because he's also their best runner? Raphael Williams will challenge that Mercer secondary. T.J. Jones and Kenny Benjamin will get involved in the pass game out of the backfield and in the short passing game. I actually think they're going to push Mercer this week. Is my ship going to sink, much like yours nearly did, with the VMI takes from a couple years back? No, I think because the Catamounts, and and honestly, you feel better if Wells is in there because he can run. But Carlos Davis, they were very high on him as far as throwing the football. So if he picks up on the system, Western does have a little bit of speed on the outside receiver-wise. And I think Western Carolina, and I know last week they did not, but I do feel like they're going to be able to put up points. And I still stick with they're going to be a hard out. And I think they will trip somebody. You know, I don't know if they're going to win a game. I think two would be their max if you had to, you know, twist my arm and say what were the absolute most they would win. But I think to win one, and the question is who's the one? Who are they going to trip up? And they've always played much better in Cullowee at 330 than they have on the road. And so there's a couple teams that need to focus in on that simple fact, and one of them would obviously be ETSU because they go there, and traditionally ETSU has struggled there. But Mercer's couple losses to Western Carolina have also come. In Cullowee. So I think it is a game that could be considered, you know, a trap game for Mercer. Looking ahead, obviously watching some things. Now, Coach Chronic, uh, I said a few weeks ago, once I figured out his name, he has done a great job to buy in. And watching again, just the sideline and everything going, everyone is on board with what he's doing. And when everyone's on board and everyone's, you know, falling in line and singing the same tune. I think that's a dangerous team, and they just keep winning. I said last week I thought it was twofold for me. I will know more about Sanford and Mercer at the end of the game, and I learned it. I did. I learned a ton. One, Mercer is going to win games this year, and they're going to be in the hunt. And two, Sanford's really excited about how many points they score. And I don't care how excited Chris Hatcher is about his defense, but they're not good. So, I think Mercer and Western could be a shootout like it was the previous week. Mercer has more weapons. I think they're going to win the game. But I think this will be a dogfight. I could see Mercer winning by 10-14, but it would be a late touchdown to push it to a two-score game. I think Western will push the envelope. If Wells is there, I feel better about it being a little tighter game. No knock on Davis. I think if Davis has a few more starts, certainly – He'll feel more comfortable in the offense. I just think because of Wells' legs, he can extend plays and do some things. And Mercer's a gambling defense with the three-three-five and the joker and all these weird things they throw at you. Similar to offense. It's a lot of smoke and mirrors. So I think the Catamounts are, are going to I'm – I'm in your corner. They're going to give them fits, and I think it will be a tight game for a while. And if Mercer wins by more than one score, I think it's because they put up a touchdown late or get a turnover late or something. That being said, with Western, you're on their schedule page right now. They can probably go ahead and 
kick off the NCAFCS playoffs first round on November 27th. They've got that listed for the league schedule. I think that even the most optimistic of Western Carolina. Absolutely. Owen, are you saying the 0 5 starts enough to knock them out? Sink their ship literally as well. Uh, I mean, fair. without, uh, you know, you get to six. Uh, impossible. No, still not. Yeah, okay. That's it. All right, that's all we got on the breakdown. So uh, when we come back, we're talking hoops. Big weekend. Game winners. Boom. All that. After this, Sanders Psychic, Buckner Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles. Harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Sanders and the sidekick back with you as we are talking hoops. Both basketball teams have started practice. We're going to talk to Coach Simon Harris on Monday. Yes. And we'll try to get Coach Oliver on the following week, and we'll talk a little ETSU basketball because crossover season, our favorite season. I mean, we won't get to sleep, but it's our favorite season. Uh, that month in November, and hopefully for football, and maybe a little in December, going to be not January. especially interesting this year with football looking poised to – make the kind of run that I think we all hoped for in 2018, right? But I think that that was more hope. Going and winning the championship and going to the FCS playoffs, that was so much for that 2018 team to accomplish and such a storybook thing in itself that when, once you got there, it was almost a little like, and, and they did not play this way in the postseason game against Jacksonville State. Heck, if it wasn't for, as we've mentioned a number of times on this show, a half-yard line fumble where your own guy knocks it out of your arms, they very well could have gone on to make a deep playoff run. It's not that they weren't up to the task. It just did feel like, as a program, university, football being back for the fourth year, I don't know about you, I was just happy that the team was there. You know, where, sure. this, where this year they've clearly, I think, taken some steps, are a more complete team, are not having to win now, of course, in the conference they are, but not every game by the slimmest of margins. You go and blow out an SEC team on the road in the first game of the year, and that kind of announces your presence, says, all right, we're ready to make that next step. And Anyway, this is supposed to be a basketball segment. Okay, so let's uh, talk about uh, a couple of buzzer beaters in the Buck Basketball Buzzer Beater Blowout. And sound the alarm, we've got a double buzzer beater today. Double buzzer beater, Jay Sandoz. Now, if you're just joining us on this segment, we're going chronologically from about the mid-2000s. We went 2006-07 was the first one. Courtney Pegram made himself a legend. Then you kind of filled in some blanks that we didn't have in the archives, 07-08, 08-09. Then last week we went 09-10, which was ETSU's last NCAA tournament appearance before C. Forbes took them there in 2017. And then, of course, qualified in 2020, weren't able to go because of COVID. So we're on to the 2010-11 season. Both of these buzzer beaters came pretty early in the season. Let's go in order. Bucks had kind of a tough start to the year, difficult schedule contributing to that. Losses to Kentucky, Murray State, then at one point lost to USC Upstate in the A-Sun opener. They were 3-4 and four coming off a 20-point loss to Charleston, entering a week in which they played back-to-back SEC opponents. The first of those 
Mississippi State. Sheldon Cooley races out. Mike Smith trying to go one-on-one. Hands off to Micah Williams. Williams drives down the lane. Spin move. Hangs. Finger roll. Left. Good. Micah Williams got it off the glass. 18. 13.2 to go in the Bucks lead. Beckham into the front court. Wants to rub off the screen from Bailey. Eight seconds to go in the game. Beckham to Beanock. Bounce pass down low to Cody Augustus. He'll put up a shot off the glass. No good. Ball comes out to Justin Tubbs. One second. That'll do it. Ball game. East Tennessee State is going to leave the building. 63-62 winners. Boy, I'm proud of our guys. We, 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 we fought hard, battled hard, did a good job on the glass, out-rebound an SEC team 35-22. What can you say about Mike Smith and Micah Williams, the two roommates that have been in our program for five years? They, they both played fabulous. You know, Curtis coming back home, I thought he gave us 32 really important minutes. Same scenario as Upstate, needing one stop to win. And at Upstate, we weren't able to get it. And fortunately, tonight, we got it. So there was a the score by Micah Williams, 2009 10 Sun Tournament MVP also led the Bucks in scoring against Kentucky in the NCAA tournament game the year before. Then the stop the Bucks got, and then Murray Barto, your favorite former head coach. I just saw him. Really? Mm-hmm. He came to the uh, Hall of Fame. Oh, that's time. awesome! Yeah. Uh, some post-game sound provided in this version of our Buck basketball basketball buzzer beater blowout. You could hear him there referencing the one-point loss to USC Upstate six days earlier, 63-62, the final. Little known fact: the Bucks have a three-game winning streak and have won three of their four all-time against the Bulldogs. And the most excited person about that fact is Bruce Trambarger, the former Ole Miss Correct. player. He uh, brings that up more than any human being. The thing I remember about that was the glass. I'm glad you actually ran the soundbite because the first thing that jumped out to me when you mentioned this game was the fact that ETSU was so dominant on the glass. And some of it really because the, the guards were big and athletic. And I know Mike Smith's probably listed as a four, but between him and Justin Tubbs, and Michael Williams could leap, too. I mean, really had some leapers on that. And then Curtis Wilkinson, I, there's, a, there's a rare reference because um, he didn't finish the year with the team. But he was able uh, to, to play big. Like, I mean, he's a 6'8 guy, 6'9 guy, junior college transfer, was able to get some rebounds. I remember Michael Williams had hit a couple shots previous to that uh, spin move finger roll. And so I, I thought that was – and Coach was right because I remember that Upstate game vividly not being able to win in that podunk gym and, and, and getting beat. The other thing I remember was uh, Reverend Johnson had just came back, and he was the skinniest man on the planet, and he basically had missed a few games. His first came back, and I think he decided, I'm going to shoot as much as humanly possible, and was like 8 for 20 or something and, and did not have a great day. Eight for eighteen. Okay, I was close. Three of twelve from outside, though. That yeah, he just uh, he just kept going. Cody Augustus was a huge dude inside. I can't believe, and it was probably fitting they gave him the basketball because that's probably in an SEC versus a um, an A Sun team at that time or a Southern Conference team. That's your best matchup, and so they went with Cody down low. ETSU was able to just disrupt the shot, and then Justin Tubbs a big rebound to secure it. But that one to me was a, a great example of sort of ETSU dominated a lot aspects of the game but wasn't on the scoreboard but was able to score you know the last three four points of the game and it was fitting that it was an offensive rebound uh, that actually led to the game-winning bucket because um, going to the free throw line was Justin Tubbs he hit the first the second to tie is no good Curtis Wilkinson gets the rebound coach Barto calls timeout they run a couple of false motions, give it to Micah Williams, and he goes and makes a play. And then ETSU gets to stop. So all around, good win. Well, Buck shot 61% in the first half and still trailed by three. You had to think, ugh, what do we got to do? But then they held Mississippi State to six of 18. How about only 18 field goal attempts in the entire half? 
and 0 of 8 from outside in the second half. Get that one-point win. Let's fast forward just three weeks. Bucks lost to Ole Miss, lost two of three at the Cancun Governor's Cup right at, right around Christmas, but conference play came around and really flipped this season. So you had that buzzer beater against Mississippi State. That didn't really build the momentum they probably had hoped. But once conference play came around, Bucks beat Campbell in their first game back in league play after the tough USC upstate loss. And they'd win 12 of their 13 from December 30th to February 4th, the second game in that stretch, coming against Mercer. Sheldon Cooley will inbound 11.3. They'll go to Salazzo. Here we go. Nine seconds to go. Salazzo front court, seven seconds. Adam Salazzo trying to get to the rim. He does, and he puts it up and in with 3.7. Adam Salazzo with 15, and Justin Tubbs knocks it away with 2.9. Not the best part of this. Not yet. So Bud Thomas... We'll give the basketball up, and a half-court heave by Hall to win the game off the front of the rim, and it goes off left side. It hit the front of the rim, hit the backboard three times, and fell off the left side. Hold on, I had to leave at the end of this. ETSU is going to escape with a 62-61 win. Post-game show, that's unbelievable after this. On the Buccaneers Sports Network, presented by Little Caesars and Hardy's. <laughs> Well, the old days. I couldn't. Firstly, there were two sponsors on the network, which was one thing that I thought was funny. And you were just, it seemed like, semi-deflating as the call went along. After it was all done, you were trying to kick it break. You're like, oh, my gosh, that was unbelievable. You're just, like, processing in real time. And you're like, oh, yeah, I got to kick it break. I have a little season charge now. Mm-hmm. That was great. That sounds right. Oh, the, the, the thing I remember about that, and I don't really remember the shot, but I, not the game-winning uh, go-ahead bucket by Salazzo, but Langston Hall's shot. Oh. It, it hit the front of the rim, hit the back of the rim, backboard, and then two or three bounces between the backboard. It was weird because it's like a, a ball that, that bounces. It was similar to, I guess, was it the Raptors that got the uh, Ka- Kawhi shot in the corner that, yes. like, bounce, bounce, bounce. Yeah, and, and, oh, just, it was sort of those. It bounced and hung, and I don't care what kind of radio person you are, it's hard to give that many bounces, descriptions, and the feel of – I mean, I try to just listen, but, like, I can see it of, like, how that ball just hung. And I think I read where, where Mike White wrote a, a ball that inexplicably fell off because it, it looked like that thing was going to break the Bucks' hearts two or three times and ended up breaking the Bears' heart in Macon, Georgia, at the University Center, now Hawkins Arena. And that thing just fell off. That's what I remember about that was the, the half-court shot, as I'm calling it, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to – figure out how I'm going to say this thing is going to go in. It's going to be a deflating <laughs> loss. And then it rolls off and it's a win because it, there's not a lot of half-court shots you feel that way. I think Keon Sankey for Lipscomb was the only other one where I thought the ball hit the front of the rim, the backboard, and then hit the front of the rim and stayed for about a full second before it fell off. And usually when you hit front rim, backboard, front rim, and it sits there, it usually just kind of falls back into the hoop. That's the only other three-point shot because, you know, we mentioned last time – Kenny George, but that thing was a missile off the backboard. So I, I did not, even though it hit the center square, I didn't feel like that one was going to be soft enough to fall in. Hall shot, Sankey shot. I felt like those balls were going to go down, and they did not. Let's not look past the man with the game winner, Adam Salazzo, ended up being the buck leader in assists that year. Six foot six point guard out of Armwood High School in Tampa. Generally a role player for the box, but played an important part there and in the rest of the season. ETSU go on to finish the year 16-4 and four in the league second behind Belmont, lost to North Florida in the A-Sun semis, and lost in the national postseason 
also the semis of the CIT College Insider Tournament by three to Iona. That overall season, Jay Sandos, your memories, impressions, seemed like the team really did hit a stride there, and then once the postseason came around, kind of fizzled out, unfortunately, in that uh, loss to North Florida. Injuries um, happened. I think they went into that Campbell game in Bowie's Creek. Wasn't the last? I think it was the last regular season game. I'm trying to look it up right now, but they only had like seven players: injuries, illness. Salazar, who was the point guard, actually started that game and ended up being the center for most of the game at six foot six six seven, just because of injuries and everything. Deshaun Johnson, who was a walk-on, got 17 minutes in that game, and just ETSU needed to figure out because you had no Mike Smith; he was out with an injury. There was a couple other injuries going into that. Then ETSU goes in the as the two-time defending champions. They go into the Atlantic Sun Conference Tournament, and they immediately turn around and play Campbell. And it's one of the few times Robert Harper had beaten ETSU as a radio play-by-play guy in hoops. He killed us in football a lot because he was on the Marshall broadcast but as a sideline guy. But in basketball at North Florida and at Campbell, and this is what was really uh, comes full circle, ETSU injured a lot. A lot of illnesses, seven players available, including a walk-on. It had to play significant minutes. ETSU, um, you know, ends up beating Campbell. I'm sorry. They ended up beating Campbell 6-6-59 with seven players. And the regular season finale. And the regular season finale. Then they open up in the tournament, and ETSU gets them again. And, and so, I'm sorry, this is why Robert Harper hates me. I couldn't remember. So, then ETSU, so they beat Campbell regular season first round. They lose to North Florida 59-55 in a – just a game where ETSU struggled to hit a shot late. Robert leaves Campbell, goes to North Florida, and North Florida never beats ETSU. And so it just – that, that, that was my full and circle. that Campbell game in the first round of the postseason was 54-53, like that close. And I remember at the end of that, ETSU hung on for the win, and Robert Harper lipping the words, I hate you, to me, down, down press row. I'll just look over at him, and I wouldn't even look it over to smile like, hey, ETSU won the game. I'm just kind of looking over at him, and he's just lipping the words, I hate you. And then he goes to North Florida, who just beat ETSU, and he's thinking, all right, here we go. Going to be able to get something done. And and they really weren't. But the end of that year, the injuries, uh, I think is what I most remember late in that um, North Florida game. ETSU just wasn't able to hit shots. I think North Florida scored the last six or eight points of that game and and ended the run. Then ETSU, I remember there's a lot of talk that they want to play in this brand-new CIT tournament, College Insider. And what really happened was – because Mike Smith, Michael Williams were both fifth-year guys. Isaiah Brown would have been a four-year starter. Justin Tubbs had been ingratiated into – he had two top ten plays that year, number one plays. He had a couple 360 dunks in wow. game play. And so he ended up going on the dunk contest that year. So that a lot of those guys won a lot of games. And they didn't really want it to end that way. And so they sort of said, all right, let's play in this brand-new CIT. So ETSU plays Furman in the first round, and they win that game pretty handily, and then they got the weird second-round buy. They don't give second-round buys until they see who all wins the first round. Right. So ETSU got a second-round buy, and then they play Ohio. And so ETSU wins that game. And then Iona comes to town, and if ETSU won that game, they would have hosted Santa Clara for the championship. And that was already predetermined if ETSU beats Iona. Iona, I, Glover, I think, wasn't it? Uh, look it up real quick. I think. Last, yeah, Mike Glover was a pro. 33-10 and 10 in the game against ETSU, but he got a cup of coffee in the NBA. I mean, he was a legit 
pro if you've ever seen a pro. And he was him and Sean Armand, who had 20 points. Those two combined for 53 of the uh, 83. But Glover, the thing I like about Glover, best mohawk that's ever been in the dome. Spectacular mohawk. And he was a jacked-up dude. And ETSU, it was one of the better college basketball games late in the year that nobody would have paid attention to, in, in fairness. Because at that time, you were getting into the Elite Eight weekend, and they were getting ready to determine the Final Four. And so it didn't get a lot of love. But 33 points, 10 rebounds for Mike Glover. Bucks, who were very good rebounding, which you already mentioned that year, and it out-rebounded a couple SEC teams, got hammered on the glass, 38-29. to 29. And ETSU did get um, a couple of guys with 20 points. Mike Smith only had 18, but the previous two games, he had had um, 30 points, I think it was, in, in the previous two wins. So a lot to remember about that year. It's the one time. Then the CIT, I think ETSU played a couple years later, and they opened up with chat, and after ETSU beat chat, nobody cared. It was like, ah, we should have just ended the season. But Mike Smith had 32 points in the first game against Furman, and then Mike Smith had uh, 24 and 10. And then had 18, so it was a good little run for him. Speaking of Mike Glover, how is this for a journey? By the way, his nickname is Optimus Prime. Uh, Well-deserved. Glover played for three high schools. His senior year transcript from American Christian Academy was voided, and he was ruled ineligible for Division I play. Glover, a top prospect, decided to sue the NCAA, but a judge dismissed the lawsuit, and he did not fight it since his girlfriend had just given birth to his son, Mike Jr., Glover then played for two different community colleges, ASA College in Brooklyn and the College of Eastern Utah. Glover then enrolled at Iona, whereas a senior he posted 18 and 9 first team, all NAAC, both years at Iona. And he actually just finished up his professional career in 2018, about a decade long. But that's quite the journey to even go on before you're 20 years old. Like, <laughs> three different high schools, uh, sue the NCAA, and then finally make it back to the NCAA after two different community colleges, and then put up huge numbers in that. I, I'm... Obviously, I'm not a tough guy, but he was not to be tried when he walked in the building. And, and coach had, the coaching staff had said, like, hey, this, we've got a pro coming in here, and it's Glover. I don't know how we're going to contain him. I'm like, how do you know which one it is? And they just smiled. And they're like, you'll see. And then it was evident. And the thing I remember about that, too, was Iona brought a lot of fans from New York. And there were a lot of players on that roster from New York. And a lot of the fans came in sort of, you know, the dome's hard to get into, and especially for a game. How do you get in? And I remember a bunch of their fans coming up to me after the game. was like, this is the greatest college basketball experience we've ever had. And I was like, why? So, well, you know, we didn't, you know, people didn't, weren't rude to us when we went in the wrong door. They were accommodating. They welcomed us in. They went ahead and let us go to our seats. They went over there. A lot of the fans came over and talked to us. They thanked us for coming down. They were doing, it was, it was quite a, a turn. And it was a, a great college basketball game and an environment. But that year was the injuries kind of mounted up on ETSU and coming off back-to-back NCAA tournaments. The CIT ending is probably what I remember the most. And I think it was a fitting way. And I think that's why ETSU, when they played in the CIT tournaments, I I think it has to be, like the Vegas success, has to be sort of a, a reward for a lot of guys that have been there as opposed to what we saw when ETSU was like, oh, we're going to have a lot of guys back, let's play in the CIT, and then lose by Green Bay to like a 1,000. And, and that had a lot of storylines, too, because yes. obviously Steve Forbes' dad passed away, wasn't there. We were missing, like, four players, three starters or something as well. But both the post players yeah. were out, and, yes, it was. And, and I think they were, ETSU was favored by, like, 24 in loss or whatever. It was, it was bad. 
that's what you remember, here's something I'd like to forget. Shohei Otani. I don't know if you heard this shit. He's going to pitch and hit. I nailed that. Mark it down. Plus 10 here. Hit a buck 20. Maybe Cy Young and MVP. I don't believe I said that. <laughs> There's I don't not a soul that can stop the big three in New Jersey. That's a five, baby. What year? Literally, the last person on earth that should ever be considered the U.S. national team is Javel I stand by that. NIL stands for never in life, as in never in life will NIL be a real thing. I did back you up on that. No, you can't. You cannot show me one guy more dedicated to the universe than Demari. I would like you to pull that tape. I don't remember that. I don't, I don't think that happened. I didn't say Do you want me to pull the tip? I, I, I didn't say it. A newly fit Jay Sanders will never scout another drive in Johnson City Country Club Senior Tour. Here we go. I didn't even believe that. And what I love you. What just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. It's simple wrong would have done this fine. I must have been in an incredibly good mood to levy that kind of phrase on your golf. Yeah, you hate me, so I was I was very shocked <laughs> that you uh, you did that. Speaking of reasons I hate you, you're up six to one in bold predictions. You're six and seven. I'm one and twelve. I love it. Things I'd like to forget. I'm gonna go ahead and start hot again. Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber. Mike Gallagher, do you know what has not happened in the last 763 days Saturday? There's too many days for me to keep track. 763 days. You know what has not happened? Uh, I'll, I'll give you the game. A crunch is done by Jake. Shorter. Davis. Yeah, that's fair. Shorter was the last time. ETSU has had someone do this. Uh, oh, wasn't that the game that uh, Cameron Lewis caught a touch, caught a ball, ran for a touchdown, and threw a touchdown? It it was, and I knew you were going to say that. So, oh. I've, so I've already uh, I was prepared for that because uh, I did nail that bold prediction too. But that was the last time an ETSU tight end caught a touchdown pass. What is that shocking? Well, I know Atkins had none in. 2021 because he was injured. I'm not as shocked because, no, it's not shocking. It is shocking. Semi-shocking. Kind of shocking. No, right, they're, they're going to get one. Okay. Titan's going to have a touchdown this week. Breaking the streak. Doesn't have to be Atkins. Could be Noah West. Could be Dawson Pearson. Probably. Juan Martin does not count. Agreed. Okay. He's a fullback. Yes. I agree. It's okay. tight end. Tight end position, and I'm only thinking West Atkins. If if, okay. s- if somehow Stasekul gets a touchdown, just more power Go to, to me. Yeah, yeah, right. so. uh, Malik Murray is going to have a career high in receiving yards. Ooh, Not like a Buccaneer that. high, but his most in blue and gold is 58. A career high. So that includes the time at Georgia Southern. His most there, 95 yards in one game, which is a mighty task at Georgia Southern in a triple option offense. He's going to go more than 95, Isaiah Wilson, of course, out. And as I kind of foreshadowed in segment one, this has got to be a game where ETSU's passing game excels, and it will with Malik Murray. I like it. I like it. And we both went passing there, too. Yes. I like it. All right, I'm going to go in the Big Ten. Ooh, me too. Mm, I'm not going to go. I got the same one again. What do you got? No, you go ahead. Okay. Uh, I've learned not to divulge information to you ahead of time, and then you change and get something right. That's fair. I'm going to go with Greg Schiano and Rutgers. Oh, wow. Number 11, Michigan State. A touchdown favorite comes to town, and the Scarlet Knights pull off the dub and knock off the top 11 team. Top Michigan 11 State. team, yes, yes. Popularly used, top 11. Top five matchup of the Big Ten, Penn State and Iowa. First time a top five matchup has not involved Michigan or Ohio State in Big Ten play in nearly 60 years. The over-under, take a guess. 38. Yeah, I was going to say, you 42. probably know it's pretty 42. low. 40 and a half. Oh, that was close. 
Shave 10 points off that because it's the Big Ten, and in typical black and blue conference fashion, it'll be physical, tough, hard-nosed, in other words, extremely boring, featuring very few points, 30 or less combined between these two. I think we all know that Big Ben is dead and bury him. Uh, Roethlisberger is the worst uh, he's ever been in the history of all of football. He is hapless. They should move on to any human being to play quarterback. That being said, I'm going Big Ben. 300 yards, three touchdowns, and a win against the Denver Broncos. 300 yards, three scores, resurrects all the demons, or if I'm wrong, he's going to retire at halftime. There you go. That's my pick. (laughs) Jacksonville Jaguars, they've been close. They pushed the only undefeated team in the NFL, Arizona, to the limit a couple of weeks ago before vomiting it away. Then last week they were up 14-0 at the half. Urban Meyer makes the first of many stupid decisions that week. And puts Trevor Lawrence in the shotgun from the one-yard line right before the half, even though he's 6'6". And they try to extend the lead to 21 to nothing. Don't get it. They come away with no points, end up losing because Cincinnati snatches all the momentum. But this week, they win in spite of, not because of, but in spite of Urban Meyer. Who will promptly head to the nearest Jacksonville bar and live it up like he's 27 instead of 57. Jacksonville takes down the Titans. So you're saying that in the video he was trying to learn how to go under center. So then Lawrence, who didn't take the shotgun, could go under center. Is that what you're saying? Wow. I'm not touching that because this is a family show. I don't even know if Is it a family show? I don't even know if that's a, like, idiom for things we can't talk about on the show. Under center. I've never heard that, but that's... (laughs) Wow. Okay. All right, here we go. let's get out of here. All right, here we go. Next week, what are we going to talk about? Let's send you into the weekend right, folks. We're going to talk football. Okay. More football, bold predictions, and basketball. Simon Harris. Simon Harris. Our guy. Recap, ETSU Citadel, bold prediction, all I got right, everything you got wrong. Fuck basketball, buzzer beer blowing on Thursday. And we got all that more coming up on Santos and Sidekick next week. Buccaneers, Fuck Network. Cowboy up, go play ball.